0: Well let's pray. As we open your word, Lord, we ex our hope is that you would show us Christ from it. And so prepare our hearts now to receive that which we you have prepared for us to hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a rather famous story it's about John D Rockefeller and I'm certain most of you have heard This statement he made at some point, in fact, I've probably mentioned it from the pulpit before, but it's worth mentioning again. And so just by way of refresher, John Rockefeller, senior, he was by most definitions, the wealthiest American of all time, the richest person in modern history. He founded the Standard Oil Company in 1870. And he earned his wealth, his great wealth, by controlling 90% of all of the oil in the United States at a time when kerosene and gasoline were growing in importance. And so he was once asked how much money it takes to make a man happy. And Rockefeller's famous reply was, just a little bit more. So I bring his answer up because it reflects not just his heart, but it reflects our hearts. It's difficult for us not to think the same way. We all tend to think that life would be better for us if we had just a little bit more money than we do. And this is the underlying motivation with every lottery ticket that is sold, right? A a winning ticket is a ticket to happiness. The end of all your earthly cares, right? Well, you'd have a tough time convincing Billy Bob Harrell of that. His life underwent a dramatic transformation when he won $31 million in the Texas lotto jackpot back in June of 1997. 1997. Prior to his win, he was facing financial hardships. He was struggling to support his wife, his three children. So he chose to collect his winnings in 25 annual payments of $1.24 million. So he quit his job at Home Depot, started living a life of luxury, started vacationing regularly in Hawaii. He was donating to his church. He was gifting properties and cars to his family. He earned uh, the nickname Santa Claus from his mother. I mean, he was doing all these things. And despite this promising start, the challenges of sudden wealth They began to grow. In the dream of instant wealth, it became a nightmare as the pressures began to mount. Demands from people kept coming in nonstop. His marriage couldn't handle it. And in the end, neither could Billy. Two years after winning the lottery, he made several bad business decisions. His wife left him and he was then found dead from a gunshot wound. And he reportedly told a financial advisor he was working with, quote, winning the lottery is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Now, this gentleman received much more than just a little bit more, right? And it transformed what seemed, at least initially, to be a blessing into his downfall. And it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to resist the the siren call of money as we regularly are swimming, you know, in a sea of materialism, always with the idea you'll be happier if you have this thing. And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that we are not immune? From thinking that more is better. Be it a little or be it a lot. More is better. The man who wrote Ecclesiastes. He could understand these motivations. Because like like Rockefeller. He was one of the wealthiest men of all time. And in this book. He refers to himself with this Hebrew word. This title. koheleth And in English He's the preacher. And as I explained last week, I believe the preacher is King Solomon. He explored the idea that more is better. In all kinds of ways, he explored this, as we'll get into in the weeks to come. But now, you know what he desires to do? He desires to warn others about what he found. And those that he's writing to at this time in Israel, they were living both at a pivotal as well as a profitable time in the nation's history. See, they were no longer an agricultural society where basically they labored from sun up to sundown and they had to trust God to bring in their daily bread. That was not the norm any longer in Israel. And unlike the previous generations, they had the opportunity before them to make a fortune through trade opportunities with the surrounding nations. So a lot of money could be made if they invested wisely and if they acted quickly. Solomon, though, has been down that road. And he knows by experience where it leads. In Ecclesiastes, it represents his effort to teach them the painful lessons that he learned through exploring if meaning and purpose and satisfaction and even happiness is possible in life apart from God. And instead of finding happiness, he came to the conclusion That all that man does under the sun amounts to vanity. It's the Hebrew word here, havel. It means vapor, air, steam, breath. All of life under the sun is Hevel. It's vapor-like. You're here one minute and then you're gone the next. And that includes everything that we experience in life. You know, the things that people think truly matter in terms of purpose and satisfaction and happiness. Solomon's saying, no. No, they really don't matter in the end. They have as much substance as your breath on a cold day. Such is the nature, he says, of life under the sun. His overall message in Ecclesiastes is that man will not find true meaning and happiness in life apart from God. And in light of the New Testament revelation of Christ, I've refined Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes to this. Only in Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun. Only in Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun so with that overall message in mind, Solomon starts his teaching in the first 11 verses with this warning. And this is the warning that we're looking at this morning. The gain mankind seeks does not exist under the sun. The gain that mankind seeks does not exist under the sun. And the title of my sermon this morning is, no gain apart from God. No gain apart from God. And before we begin, though, let's read our text. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And let's read beginning in verse 3. Well, let's start in verse 2. There's the premise. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises, and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the north, and turning toward the south, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea... Is not full to the place where the rivers flow, there. They flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It's new already it has existed for ages which were before us there's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the late of the later things which will occur there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still so he states his theme in verse 2 all is vanity the preacher's now ready to start making his case For the emptiness of our existence. And he begins it by asking a question. And the first thing that he wants us to do. This is the first thing that we need to do. Is we need to consider what we gain under the sun. Consider what we gain under the sun. And we see him asking this question in verse 3. He says, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Now this is not only... This is not the only time that he asks this question. He repeats himself, for example, in chapter 3. He says, what profit is there to the worker from that in which... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. From that in which he toils. had a cold this week. The word for advantage and the word for profit... These are words that are normally used in the context of business. In fact, these words are only used in Ecclesiastes. So Solomon plucks him out of a world he's very familiar with, business, advantage, profit, right? And he brings him into Ecclesiastes. This word, it means, it's from a verb meaning to be left over, to remain. And so I think you can see where, we, where it leads to this idea of profit. It refers to what is left over. After you subtract your expenses from your income, what is what do we call that? That's your gain. That's your profit. That's the goal of doing business, right? If something isn't profitable, you don't do it. If you're not going to gain, if you're going to put in more work than what you gain from it, that's not a profitable decision. You don't do it. And Solomon wants his readers to grapple with this question. His opening statement that all is vanity is this jarring conclusion about life that he's come to. It's like, it's like somebody dragging their nails across a chalkboard. And there's some people who don't even probably grasp that illustration. Because they don't have chalkboards very much anymore. But remember that? You can picture it almost makes, it, makes you shiver when you scratch a chalkboard. That's, the, that's kind of the way he comes out the gate. All is vanity. What? Now, he asks, he, he, now that he has our attention. You're listening to me now, right? All is vanity. How do we know this? Why would you say this, Solomon? Well, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? See how he uses that question? It's rhetorical. Solomon already knows the answer and the idea is so do we. We also know the answer, but he wants to draw us into the discussion. So we'll grapple with what he's saying. That's why he's doing this. And given his statement that all is vanity, the clear answer to this rhetorical question is there is no advantage. There is no gain. Everything is vain. Because the gain that people are seeking doesn't exist under the sun. Now, remember this phrase, because we're going to say it a lot. Under the sun. It's a phrase that Solomon uses over and over about 12 times to help us to see our need to hope in God. It refers to living in the world without taking God into account. See, and some of you are doing this right now. You are here... That doesn't mean you're taking God into account. It's what you're doing out there. It's how you're living out there that shows whether or not you're really taking God into account. And Solomon wants you to grapple with this. And so I hope that you will. I hope that you'll listen to me, those of you who are living life under the sun and think there's meaning out there in life under the sun. But you're living life without consideration of God. That's what it means to live life just under the sun. And if all you ever do in life is live it under the sun only, in this world, anywhere you go, anywhere the sun shines is the idea. You're not going to find meaning there apart from God. And you can either find that out for yourself and exhaust yourself in the pursuit of that meaning and purpose and little bit more that you think you need. Or you can listen to Solomon. And learn from his mistakes. See, because some of you are going to go out and you're going to live your life under the sun. And all the effort that you put into finding happiness and meaning and purpose, you know what it's going to amount to? As if you spent your entire life chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You're just going to keep going and it's just going to always be out in front of you and you'll never get there. Solomon will, is going to prove his point. And he's going to do it by asking us to learn from two different sources. The world around us, the natural world, and then our own experiences. Bad <coughs> time for a tickle. anyone has a cough drop, I'll take it, because that's going to coat my throat just enough. So if you have one, (coughs) here we go. You'll just, thank you. I'll just have to work around my tongue around the uh, cough drop. Sorry. (coughs) Bill's not here. Bill's my cough drop supplier when I have a cough. Bill, if you're listening, we miss you, brother. I especially at this moment. <coughs> Can you mute me for a second? Okay. I needed to do that. Thank you. Okay. So the first thing he wants us to do is he wants us to learn from the world around us. So he pulls his examples from the commonly accepted categories of his day. And We'll see each of them. The earth, the sun, the wind, and the water. And each of these, they have a natural cycle that we can all observe. And each will serve to prove the vanity of life under the sun. So Solomon begins with the earth. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. So every generation of people that comes upon the scene, it hopes that they're somehow going to make life better for the generation that's (coughs) going to follow. So the coming of a new generation conveys the idea of progress. And like after the baby boomers which was my parents, then comes generation X, right? That's my generation. X is followed by the millennials, which is followed by Gen Z, which is all we're talking about these days, Gen Z. And then Gen Z is followed by Gen Alpha. And so this seems to, actually, we probably have, we have, I think, we probably have Gen X no, we probably have baby boomers all the way down to Gen Alpha. In, in, I don't know if they're all in the room today, but we have all those in the church. Interesting. All these generations here exist. And one follows the other. And so this seems to suggest the idea of gain, right? This idea that one generation comes onto the scene and, and improves upon the previous generation and so forth. But actually, Solomon is saying, actually, no, the opposite is true. And our first hint of this Is the order of the preacher's words. See, we would normally say, if we're referring to this, we would normally say, a generation comes and a generation goes. But he reverses the order. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes. And in so doing, he's putting the emphasis on what? The replacement of one generation by the next. So he's not emphasizing progress, is he? What he's emphasizing is just the constant, ongoing change of one generation by the next one that follows. One dies, and it's replaced by the next one that will also die, and then it will be replaced by the one after that, and on and on it goes. Not only that, but the same things are taking place along the way. Each generation says, well, I'm the new thing on the scene. But no, you're just the same kind of a thing that just came and went. What, for example, the younger generation, what do they see the older generation as? Out of touch. What does the older generation see the younger generation as? You know, disrespectful. Get off my lawn. Right? You think that just began in this generation? No, it's been going on and on and on. In fact, there's a famous line from a song called My Generation. A song by The Who, if you're familiar with them. It says, I hope I die before I get old. Now, Pete Townsend wrote those lyrics. He did so back in 1965 when he was 20 years old. He was expressing his feeling that older people just don't get it. Those words became the anthem of the rebellious British youth of the late 1960s. Now, he and Roger Daltrey, he's the lead singer of The Who, you know how old they are now? 78 and 79, respectively. And so, Townsend was giving an interview back in 1987 and they were asking questions about this song, My Generation, and that line, you know what he said? At that time, he was, what, 60-something? He says, I was very, very lost. Not when you were 20 you didn't think you were. See, this is the same thing. It just keeps happening over and over. A generation goes, a generation comes, but it all stays the same. Meanwhile, the world the world itself is the same. The next generation rises up. They're going to do something different. They're going to make the difference in the world. We're going to change the world. But the cycle just simply continues. Or as Solomon puts it, he says, the earth remains forever. A lot of activity, but no real progress. It's the same thing over and over and over. The preacher then moves on to another example in nature that illustrates activity without any gain. The sun. Now, Psalm 19 is David describing the rising of the sun this way. He says, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Now, look at Solomon's description in verse five. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Now, you don't get quite the idea of what he's conveying with that word hastening to its place. The word what he's literally saying with that word is the sun pants. To get back again to the place where it started. It's like. It's like that, that's the picture. The sun just running back and forth. And it's it's panting to get back where it started to again. The sun is exhausted. Gasping for breath from doing the same thing over and over and over again. And to what gain? None. The sun is basically on a treadmill. And all the preacher sees is the monotony of life. In an unchanging universe. No gain. From the sun, he then turns to the wind. Verse 6, he says, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. So from our perspective on the earth, what direction does the sun always go? East, it rises. West, it sets. Does it ever do otherwise? No. Rises in the east sets in the west. It's confined, so to speak, in this constant cycle going east to west, east to west. But the wind, the wind is different, isn't it? Solomon says that it blows, not only, he says, north to south, so it goes different than the, than the sun does, but he describes it, he says, it's swirling along. So it seems freer to, to blow where it wishes. In fact, in that idea, that's what Jesus used to illustrate the Spirit's will to cause whomever He chooses to be born again. As the wind blows where it wishes, the Spirit saves whom He wishes. You can't predict wind. You can't predict the saving power of the Spirit where it's going to happen. But notice, though, that despite its swirling, He says its circular courses... What eventually happens? What does it say there? The wind does what? It returns. It may blow one way, and and then what? And I would say even predictably, predictably it blows right back again. I've been out on the lake in Idaho or in Ponderay many times in my dad's boat, and maybe after picking up one of the kids or dropping one of them off and. And we're coming back, and it's late in the afternoon, and the sun is going down. And the moment that sun goes down behind the mountain in the west, temperature drops rapidly. And within a couple minutes, the wind then blows off the eastern mountains, down the ravine, and out onto the lake, and you get a choppy lake right in the middle. And so we're driving back to the cabin, and then you're bumping along on the choppy waves, and you think, oh, the sun must have gone down. That's how predictable the wind is. Happens every day. It may blow about from here to there throughout the day. But even the wind is caught in a rut. And for all its constant movement, nothing is ever gained. The teacher then moves from the earth to the sun, to the wind, and then lastly to water. Verse 7, he says, all the rivers flow into the sea yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Most people think that David had the Dead Sea in mind when he was describing this process. The Dead Sea is about 1,380 feet below sea level. It's the deepest lake in the world. There's no outlet from that lake. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. So day after day, what is happening? Day after day after day, thousands and thousands of gallons are flowing into the Dead Sea. And yet what? Never overflows. There's several verses in Scripture that you can read them and you can see that God conveyed to the people. And therefore, they probably understood what we now know as the hydrologic cycle. The hydrologic cycle is the the continuous um, evaporation of water up into the air and clouds and then the return to earth through precipitation, snow and rain. And so it's very likely Solomon knew the hydrologic cycle, even though he didn't call it that. But that's not what he's saying. Oh, well, it doesn't happen because the hydrologic cycle. No, look at what he's focusing on. He's he's focusing on the never ending movement and activity that never seems to accomplish a purpose. Is anything really being accomplished by these thousands of gallons flowing into the sea? The sea is never filled up. In fact, they end up back at the top again and they just repeat the whole cycle all over again. Is anything really being accomplished here? The preacher says, no, the earth remains the same. The sun keeps rising and setting. The wind goes about, but then it returns. The sea never fills up. Earth, sun, wind, water, they're all stuck in a rut. And if these basic elements gain nothing from all of their work over thousands and thousands of years, then what hope do we have of ever accomplishing anything in this world in the mere breath of our life? But there is another source other than nature that teaches us this sobering lesson that there is no gain in life under the sun. The preacher would also have you learn from your own experience. First, we learn from the world around us. Secondly, he wants us to learn from our own experiences. These are experiences that are common to all of us. And they each illustrate how little there is for us to gain in living life apart from God under the sun. The teacher sums up the first lesson in verse eight. He says, he says, all things are wearisome. And he's referring probably back to all these cycles that he's just described in nature. And he's saying, it's just wearisome to think about all this. And then that leads him into these three statements that we can all relate to as human beings. Verse eight, man is not able to tell it. The eye is satis- is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. So. What do we have in view here? We've got the mouth, the eyes, and the ears. And as human beings, what are we constantly doing? Speaking, seeing, and hearing. And yet, we never reach a place of satisfaction where, where there's nothing. You know what? I don't need to say anything more. I don't need to hear anything more. I don't need to see anything more. Now, we may say that in the midst of an argument with our kids or something. I don't need to hear anymore. You know, but thats we don't mean ever again. We never reach that point. Think of how much we see and hear in a day. Every day, from waking to sleeping, our eyes are continuously processing sights and sounds. So social media, as, as we, I, I trust you know, it has tapped into our insatiable sensory appetite and engineered their apps to scroll endlessly. Have you noticed that? That you never reach the bottom. That's on purpose. In fact, your app is never going to say to you, "Hey man, I think you've scrolled enough." In fact, if it did, we'd probably say, "Hey, you don't, don't tell me what to do. If I want to keep scrolling, I'll keep scrolling." See, everywhere we go, what are we doing? We've got our earphones on, we've got our AirPods in, and what are we doing? We're listening. We're listening to podcasts, YouTube channels, the 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 soundtrack of our lives. You know, we all get to walk around with our own soundtrack now, but it's constantly happening. So we scroll scroll through some more Instagrams, we go to sleep, and then we wake up and we do the same thing all over again. Seeing, hearing, speaking. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's no value in the input from from these kinds of things. Yeah, there's much to be gained, but we need to see what Solomon is really lamenting here. Because he didn't have social media, he didn't have Spotify, so he's not talking about that. If you're looking in those places to find something of meaning and purpose apart from God, you can forget it. The only thing that we can honestly say that we're getting from all of our efforts is tired. Not meaning, not purpose, not satisfaction, just weariness. That's our plight under the sun. Nothing on this planet, nothing found in nature, nothing that we can take in will bring us rest, satisfaction, meaning. And people have done this since the beginning of time. They have searched in religion. They have searched in politics. They have searched in science, in education, and the arts. But they will never find meaning on this planet in and of itself apart from God. And take a moment now. Just pause here and ask yourself a question. What is that one thing that you are saying to yourself? If I could have that, I would be more happy. Whatever it is a relationship, money, a bigger home, that ideal destination vacation, a job, a title. The benefit that you will gain from whatever that thing is, it will be short-lived. And your search will just go on and on and on. Because the earth is cursed with temporality. The ceaseless activity of the generations, the sun, the wind, the rivers, they're all mirrored in human life. Just as all the activity in nature gains nothing, so all our speaking and seeing and hearing gains us nothing. And they just leave us tired and empty-handed in the end. And this wearisomeness, this weariness, it's nothing new. Even in Solomon's day, it was nothing new. The endless weariness of human history, it teaches us there is no gain To be found. It just keeps repeating itself over and over. Look at verse nine. He says that which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. You know, even, you know, in our day, we've got a lot of this, but even in Solomon's day, there were already plenty of nations that had risen and fallen. This has happened so many times since the dawn of civilization that we can't even keep track It's amazing to think of massive cities in great nations that once thrived. Thrived like we are thriving today, right? And now they're nothing more than piles of rubble and broken pottery shards. And yet we still think, oh, we'll be here forever. No. No. Who knows how many Nations and cultures have been utterly lost to, to history. And yet human nature remains unchanged. Wars begin. Wars end. Peace comes. Peace goes. Some conflicts never seem to end, right? Like that in the Middle East between the Jews and, and the Palestinians and the Arabs. It has always been this way for mankind. Nothing has changed that. As the preacher says, so there's nothing new. Under the sun. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, wait, wait, there are new things. They didn't have this in Solomon's day. They have an iPhone. That's new. See, the preacher seems, he seems almost willing to consider that possibility. I know what you're going to say. And so look at 10. He says, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new. And you're like, yeah, my iPhone. Brand new, in fact. Latest model. But the moment is very brief. And then he quickly denies it. He says, already it has existed for ages which were before us. See, new technology has been being developed since the hammer and the shovel. We've just developed easier and better ways to do the same basic work. You know what a backhoe is? A backhoe Right, the big arm digging a dig hole. That's a glorified shovel. That's all it is. It digs a hole a lot easier with a lot less effort in quicker time. But it's a glorified shovel. It's nothing new. The context the preacher is saying here is there's nothing new, though. It's not just new ways of doing things. That's why he's drawing the distinction. There's nothing new. Now, take the iPhone. It's certainly new technology. But it does nothing new for you in terms of understanding man or the meaning of life. It brings no genuine new meaning to your life. Whatever new it brings, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be old in about six months when the new model comes out. And those who come up with these new technologies, you know what? They all have the same fallen nature true of everyone since Adam. No matter the time, No matter the place, man still deals with the same basic problems, the same moral failures, the same underlying insecurities that people have always had. And that's why history is circular, not linear. Which is why we can say to those who fail to learn from history, they're doomed to repeat it because history is circular. It comes around again. Life under the sun just seems to be one big hamster wheel and it just goes around and then you come back to the beginning again. Our problem is is that we're we're not on that wheel long enough to realize how true that statement is. When we think something is new, we just weren't around to see when this thing was just around previously. It just didn't look as flashy and shiny and bright as it does now. Or as the Ecclesiastes-like phrase goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So Solomon concludes this passage. He says in verse 11, There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. There's no remembrance now and the group that's coming isn't going to remember you and the group that's after them isn't going to remember them. It's just the way life goes. He's told us that generations going and coming, they make no difference to the earth because it just remains forever. But is it possible for the people of one generation or individuals to somehow stand out, somehow show gain. Can people make such an impact upon history that they will be remembered and gain some kind of recognition? And Solomon just simply says, nope, it's not possible. To so pick just one example, just one example from several that could be used to illustrate this point. Have you ever heard of the Hindus? Not the Hindus. The Hindus. Anybody? No? Did you know that they were they were once known as the Harappans? Heard of them? No. They were once the largest in ancient history. They extended over the parts of India, Pakistan and Afghanistan. They contained as many as 5 million people. At its height the civilization boasted some of the world's most impressive architecture among other achievements. It disappeared approximately 3,000 years ago for unknown reasons. Five million people just disappear for for over a little course of time, and no one even remembers them, not here. Our descendants will remember us no more than we remember our ancestors. Do you know who your great-great-grandfather was? Now, some of you are like, well, I I went on Ancestor.com and I found out who they are. Do you know anything about them? Well, I have their birth record, and I saw that they came to New York. That's it. That's it. That's all you know. It's only a matter of time until what Solomon says here will be true of us, and maybe even for America. For them, no remembrance. So Solomon wants us to see that to orient your life toward ensuring that you have some kind of a lasting legacy in the generations to come, that's chasing after wind. You can't control the future any more than the past can be remembered. Many people want to name some kind of a mountain. Let's say someone comes along and says, you are so amazing, we're going to name this mountain after you. You know what's going to happen in a generation or two? Someone else is going to come along to somebody and go, you know what, we're going to name this mountain after you. Same mountain, different name. Well, that was called Mount Nick. Mount who? Right? We saw this in Genesis, Right? Uh, And eventually a king rose up who knew nothing of Joseph. He saved Egypt and the world. They knew nothing about him. him. No remembrance. Maybe you'll write a book about yourself. Well, that'll surely last. No, your book will probably be digital and it'll be deleted. Or it'll end up in a bookstore and that bookstore will burn down. The last copy, it's all gone, you know. It ain't going to work. You're trying to reason out how Solomon's wrong here. He's not wrong. And he wants you to see this. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you accomplish. When you die, all hope perishes. And no one is better off than others. Death is the vanity of vanities. It dashes all hopes of immortality, including being remembered forever. Okay, so what conclusion do you come to when you consider your life and what you've gained under the sun? The preacher says... That all is vanity because the gain that mankind seeks, it doesn't exist under the sun. Are you starting, I hope at least, to begin to agree with Him? Are you, Or are you still going to go on looking for the meaning of life in all the wrong places? Can you see that the preacher, what he's trying to do here, he's not trying to depress you. He's trying to make you feel the weight of the weariness and the futility of life under the. The sun. He wants to bring you to the point where we begin to fear that all is vanity. That's the only honest assessment of life. And if you're scratching your head, you're wondering, well, where am I going to find meaning then under the sun? You are right where Solomon wants you to be. He's showing us that there is no ultimate answers to our ultimate questions under the sun. There's no gain to be found. Only weariness and frustration as you realize that the little bits of satisfaction that you scratch out of life don't last. The vacation ends, Monday comes. They're like peanuts. They taste good for a moment, but they make you thirsty. Whatever thing you think will satisfy you, once you get it, you're gonna prove Solomon's point. It won't be enough. It's only God who can bring us peace and satisfaction. That we're looking for. And Solomon's purpose of showing you this depressing reality of life under the sun is so that you'll come to that necessary realization that you will never find it living life in this world apart from God. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, all you will find is frustration and futility. Nothing has meaning and nothing matters under the sun. Life lived under the sun is to leave God out of it. And there's only one conclusion that you will come to in the end. All is vanity. That is the sad, depressing, bad news. But there's good news. This is not the whole story. Solomon is telling you the way things are if you will only look at them under the sun. This is what this is the key. This is one of the keys to understanding this book of Ecclesiastes. He's pointing out these stark realities about the weariness of our existence, so that we will become disillusioned with life under the sun. Because then, and only then, will we be able to see the meaning and the satisfaction is found where in God, in His Son, not under the sun, but in the Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you have considered what you gain under the sun and you've seen its weariness and its futility, then realize that God is graciously calling you to, secondly, live your life in the sun. Live your life in the sun. How do you do this? Well, living your life in the sun, it begins when you receive eternal life from God's son. Our sins have separated us from God. He's the author of life, but we have been condemned to death. And the Bible makes it clear, though, that God sent his son into the world not to judge it, but to save it, which he did on the cross. And it's through his shed blood that your sins can be forgiven and you can be redeemed from this life of emptiness and futility. It's not by what you do. It's not by how you gain heaven, right? By being good or anything like that. That's impossible. Just strike that from your thoughts that you could ever be good enough for heaven. The only thing that God says that you can do to gain salvation is put your faith in what, not what you do, but what Jesus did on the cross. There He paid for your sins. He took your place. This was all God's plan of salvation. That's what the cross was all about. So that you and me as sinners who have no hope, were helpless, were without God in the world, could find God and be allowed to come to God. Not on our own merit, but on Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith in Him. It's it's turning away from your sin, which God hates, and turning to the Son and say, only by you can I be saved. I have no hope behind that, besides that. So that's where this begins. Eternal, receiving eternal life in God's Son. This is what allows you to secondly see this life from God's perspective. See this life from God's perspective. Life will still have its troubles, its weariness, its vanities. We're still living in a fallen world. And we're going to experience the, the troubles and the challenges of it. But we can now have the perspective of God who isn't under the sun. He's above the sun. He made the sun. He brings the joy and the purpose into everything. Now, let, let's just quickly walk back through what Solomon just laid out. Consider again the natural world. with, with it, just, it just keeps going and going one generation to the next and on and on it goes. But instead of seeing its futility, we can rejoice in the testimony that it gives to God's goodness and faithfulness. The winds, they blow. The the waters flow, but only at His command. And to the blessing of every creature. The constancy of nature. The sun. The season. Our days. Our years. It all points what? To a faithful God whose steadfast love never ceases. Whose mercies never come to an end. Each morning, it's as if they're brand new. That's what nature points to. But not if you're living under the sun. Only if you see things from God's perspective above the sun. Consider your experiences that we talked about. There's nothing new under the sun. Ah, but God who rules over the sun. There's always something new through Christ's death on the cross. We have a new covenant of grace, not law through Christ's resurrection. We have new life from death through the spirit. We have a new heart. We were made a new creation that we can now grow in the knowledge and the holiness of God and and whenever life gets difficult and wearisome as it will we can remember that it's the lord who's making all things new including the making of a new heaven and a new earth right and knowing this is not only going to help you to persevere but you're going to realize these frustrations they just they don't last forever we we live in the home uh, in the hope of a new day a new day is coming when our eyes well, our eyes, which aren't ever satisfied here, oh, they'll be satisfied with the sight of Christ. Our ears, they'll finally be filled up, but with the sound of the praises of God's people. And because of the Son of God, the life under the sun, it's not our final destination. It's not our only experience. A new day is coming, and with it, a new existence where weariness and frustration, it will be forever replaced by rest and satisfaction. So consider again what the preacher asks in verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Are you stuck on the treadmill of existence? Are you pursuing just a little more? It's like a carrot on a stick in front of you. You're going to exhaust yourself trying to reach what will always be out of your reach. That is the picture of life under the sun. The truth is that Jesus wants to give you what you're seeking. Only it will never be found in the things of this world. Even if you could have the whole world, what would you gain? Or more importantly, what would you lose? This was the question that Jesus asked. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, the gain that mankind seeks, it doesn't exist under the sun but only in Christ He offers it freely to you. So come to Christ and you come to life. You come to meaning. You come to purpose. You come to satisfaction because He is the author of life and He defines it for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how You care for us. You see us in all of our futile pursuits and you have mercy and compassion on us. You don't mock us. You don't say you're getting what you deserve. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is your heart. Oh, turn hearts that are steeped in futility to find satisfaction in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.